0: I love it when you read to me. Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
1: I am Janice Libovitz. You are People of the Book. And um, This time of year, I mean, COVID aside, when it comes to the Chagim and we're wrapping up, Coming to the end of the Chagim and generally we don't know what day of the week it is. I mean, with COVID, generally with lockdown, we all kept saying we didn't know what day of the week it is and with the Chagim and we always say, well, we don't know. Is it, is it Rosh Hashanah? Is it the Is it, what is it? What day is it? And now we're coming to the end of that time of year. And for many who didn't get to go to shul this year, it was even more confusing. And with the Chagim being on the weekends, I think that, that put us out even more. We didn't get our weekends. We, we had Chagim. We, we really, I I think all of us are just so out of it. We don't know what's going on. But this weekend we have Shmini Atzeret and Simcha Torah, a really happy time. And we, we reach the end of that, that circle of, of completing the Torah and we start again immediately. And less than two weeks ago, we, we had Yom Kippur. And one of the prayers of Yom Kippur is Unetana um, tokef, very me- moving and meaningful, and really um, the, the service of the day reaches a climax at that point where we talk about um, Hashem who decides who will live, who will die in the coming year. And the words of the prayer, I think if we read the English, I think we are all quite moved by it. But I think this year, even more so. And the prayer reads, On Rosh Hashanah will be inscribed, and on Yom Kippur will be sealed, How many will pass from the earth, and how many will be created? Who will live, and who will die? Who will die at his predestined time, and who before his time? Who by water, and who by fire? Who by sword? who by beast, who by famine, who by thirst, who by storm, who by plague. And I think this year, many of us will have found that particularly meaningful. And I mean, who ever thought we would be living through such a, a huge plague in our time? Who by strangulation and who by stoning? Who will rest and who will wander? Who will live in harmony and who will be harried? who will enjoy tranquility and who will suffer, who will be impoverished and who will be enriched, who will be degraded and who will be exalted. And I think we think to ourselves, these are things that won't affect us in this day and age. Who dies by these means? Who dies by by methods like this? And someone who sees methods like this quite often, unbelievably, and who says that these biblical methods of dying are quite alive and well, and excuse the pun, is Professor Ryan Blumenthal, who has written a book called Autopsy. Ryan is one of the country's leading forensic pathologists, and he's written this book, Autopsy, Life in the Trenches with a Forensic Pathologist in Africa. And the day after Yom Kippur, I was privileged to have the opportunity to interview Ryan in a Zoom interview and we'll be playing that interview throughout the show today. And we'll have some insight into what a forensic pathologist in Africa sees when he performs autopsies in the very challenging um, circumstances that he has to work in our country and in the outlying areas of South Africa today. So coming up during the show, you'll be listening to my interview with Ryan Blumenthal. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating and really intriguing. So that's what we'll be listening to today. Right now we'll be taking a break.
0: I love it when you
1: read to me. This is People of the Book
0: with Janice Liebowitz.
1: Coming up right now, you'll listen to the first part of my interview with Ryan Blumenthal about his book, Autopsy, Life and Adventures for the Forensic Pathologist in Africa. I'm chatting to my guest, Dr. Ryan Blumenthal, actually Professor Ryan Blumenthal, author of the best-selling book, Autopsy, which literally sold out within, I think, a couple of weeks of hitting the shelves. And I have to ask you as my first question, Ryan, what do you attribute the the absolute fascination and the popularity of a book like this? Is it is it due to the glamour factor and popularity of shows like CSR, What do you think it's all about?
2: That is a very good question. And I have been thinking about it myself because I don't actually uh, understand it myself. I just think maybe it's an idea whose time has come. Like, I just think, you know, people needed to hear this. We always see the newspaper heading, you know, which is pretty grim, about someone being murdered or an accident or suicide. And then... What happens next? You know, we what happens to these people? How's the case solved or processed? And and my book gives the almost kitchen confidential behind the scenes tell all about what happens next.
1: And I mean, you know, people do associate it with glamour. I think that's because of the TV shows, but it's very far from Glamorous. I mean, the book, you do, as you say, give a, a kitchen confidential. It's it's a nitty gritty, very medical description of what you do.
2: Well, I thought about, you know, one can romanticize anything in life, or can tell it for what it is, you know, and, and it's how you frame it. And I decided, it's time to take people out their comfort zones. And the book does challenge you a bit. And it it, it takes you to places where you didn't want to well, you, you didn't even know you wanted to go, so I just think people need to hear this. It is what it is, and um, it, it was hard to write. It took me six years to write, actually. Oh wow! And I wrote from the heart.
1: And the funny thing is, well, if you can call it funny, you know, we were in Shul yesterday, being Yom Kippur, um, and for those listening and wondering what I'm talking about, you know, this is a pre-recorded interview with with Ryan. And there's, there's a part of the service that it gets to describing all the different weird and wonderful ways that, that people can die <laughs> to be really gruesome. And the one that really stuck out, I think for many people this year is to die by plague. And, and I think in your book, you describe also so many of these other things that people think, oh, you know, this is never going to happen in our lifetime to anyone we know, and I think you've seen many of those things and and you described them in the book <laughs> in quite graphic yeah. form
2: Well, I deal with chiefly unnatural deaths, so these are deaths um, that will, will require a medical legal investigation, so I deal with murders, suicides, and accidents, but you're right in the service yesterday all the biblical ways of dying are there, you know, death by fire, death by stoning, death by drowning, you know, and I mean, these are the cases we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So there are still biblical deaths happening in our present time. Make no mistake. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a stoning death. And let me just say this about stoning deaths. They will fool you badly. You think stones cause round, nice imprint abrasions. They do not. A stoning death, there's lacerations, there's signs of sharp force trauma, there's signs of blunt force trauma. Stoning, the biblical term, can fool, uh, modern pathologists badly.
1: Yeah, you said so because you said that the, in the book you, you described that and you said that the death actually never comes from the actual stoning. It's more from the, the physical reaction to the stoning.
2: Yeah, well, that's mob assault that I was discussing in the yeah. book. Um, so we do get mob assault in South Africa um and yeah it's 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 biblical and it's it's almost biblical there's there'ssmbock uh, injuries there's stoning there's kicking there's punching injuries, the patterns of injuries, and you know I discuss this in the book
1: although it sounds like a very gruesome very technical book it's quite a quick and it sounds bizarre to say an easy read. <laughs> I read a lot of psychological thrillers, so maybe that's just the way my brain thinks, and I do enjoy CSR, if enjoy is the right word. But um, it is a quick read, and it's fascinating. I have It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm a squeamish person. I was reading this kind of holding my breath and thinking, what is coming next, you know? But just to, to move on a bit, your own personal journey into forensic pathology wasn't purely um, a clinical choice. Um, it was driven by your own experience earlier on in your life and also earlier on in your medical career and um, that made you decide to move into forensics so so tell me a bit about that
2: Okay. Um, Before I answer that if I can just comment about your previous statement Um, the book was written um, to make it easily accessible for everyone so I also wrote it for what's known as the attention economy so I wrote it very simply um, and it's been watered down it's been diluted and it's been sanitized so you know it shouldn't actually shock anyone too badly um, it's there to educate up and educate down and it is highly accessible to to everyone
1: but that, um, just that, comment that being on said that. that being said though you haven't sugarcoated it like you said earlier you didn't sugarcoat things you you said it was time to write a book like this and it was time that um you know people are ready for a book like this and people need to know the ins and outs of this and they need to know what, what it's really like. And it's not not a romanticized, glamorized version of what you do. And I think you're quite right that it is time that we we see it for what it is.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. And then get responding to your second question about my personal journey, people want to know, I mean they're fascinated, you know, they say, why choose this career path and what makes you want to deal with dead people every day? You know what's it like in the trenches? It's such a tough question to to ask, and one has to thoroughly interrogate one'self as to why one does this or did it. And um, I addressed this, I believe, in the book, because one gets asked this a lot. you know they don't you get depressed? don't you have post-traumatic stress disorder? You know uh, you know how do you deal with this on a day-to-day basis, seeing all these deaths? And I believe uh, I think I addressed it to my own uh, satisfaction in the book. I think it really—I um, think answers why I went into this field. And I, look, I don't want to give too much away about the book. I've I really yeah, no, we,
1: we don't want to—we don't want to give book. everything away.
2: It starts off with uh, bullying. You know, I was bullied as a child, and I'm uh, anti-bullying to the max. And uh, my book's about injustice, and I cannot take injustice. And I also address different types of injustice. Why should some injustices be worse to some people than other injustices? And I really, I think, challenge people's perceptions on that. You know, and I start off in a very um, insidious way by, um, you know, the coroner of the stars, you know, Thomas Noguchi, yes. about him having performed autopsies on the likes of Marilyn Monroe and, um, you know, people who've performed autopsies on presidents and famous artists. And then, you know, m- myself doing autopsies on homeless people and what happens if the homeless person is actually a celebrity? and you know, the public's perception as to why are they interested in some deaths and not other deaths and are going to equality in death. And uh, I, I discuss a concept called distributive justice, which is, a I think, an, an idea which is coming into its own these days, and I think it needs to be addressed. And I think this is a major theme in my book, distributive justice.
1: Yes, no doubt. It comes through very clearly um, in, in what you do and why you do it. And particularly... Um, in Africa, where and I think you discuss that also a lot in the book, in being a forensic pathologist in Africa comes with its own um, disadvantages and its own challenges compared to to being to, to being in this field globally. Well, Janice,
2: you know the the original title of my book was "Death and Adventure in Africa: <laughs> Tales of an African Forensic Pathologist." Because I wanted to separate my book from other books in the genre that have been written overseas. I mean, what do we specifically have to deal with on this continent on a day-to-day basis? And we have, for example, African wildlife-related deaths. We've got certain weather phenomena. You know, we've got certain cultural things that happen on our country that doesn't happen in other countries. Like certain ways of poisoning and killing. And I decided to address all these things specifically African-centric from a forensic point of view.
1: I mean, not even to mention the lack of facilities in some areas and and the challenges with, with lack of power, lack of water, things like that, which you also address in the book.
2: Yeah, I discuss challenges that we have day-to-day, you know, like labour relation issues and lack of electricity, lack of water, and how we as a very flexible and um, we're, we're a very resilient nation, you know, uh, when things go wrong here, we tend to handle it, I think, sometimes better than other nations. We, yes. We're very flexible. Yes. You know, if, a, if robots go down here, it's not the end of the world. You know, whereas if a robot goes down in a big city like London or New York, it's almost like the end of the world. Yeah. But we just get on with it, you know. And I address this in my book, for example. You know, one day we had no water. So what do we do? You know, we get the fire department to fill municipal drums, with water, 50-liter water bottles, and we use a sponge and 50 liter municipal drums full of water to, to do our autopsies.
1: Yeah, just we, get we're on unique. With it. it's be unique and the challenges are unique. It's fascinating what uh, you have to deal with. I love it
0: when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebewitz.
1: Today you are listening to a pre-recorded interview that I managed to do with Ryan Blumenthal the day after Yom Kippur, and if you don't know who Ryan is, he is a forensic pathologist who has written the most fascinating book called Autopsy, Life in the Trenches with a Forensic Pathologist in Africa, and today we are playing that interview, it's absolutely fascinating, the book is fascinating, if you can get your hands on it, I suggest you do. It's really been written for everybody, even if you are not in the medical field, not in the medical profession. It's really a book for everyone. And today we are listening to that interview. If you've just joined us, I am chatting to Dr. Ryan Blumenthal about his best-selling book, Autopsy. And really, if you can get hold of a copy, it is in reprint, isn't it? It was reprinted, I think. Correct.
2: And i um... Also, I've heard that it's going overseas now from February next year through Icon Books and that it's being translated into Russian. Oh, wow. So that's good news, yeah.
1: So you should be able to get hold of a copy. Um, I know that the, the first print just sold out within a couple of weeks of hitting the shelves. So I know I got one of the last copies when I got hold of it. So I was quite thrilled about that. So that's um, Dr. Ryan Blumenthal's book, Autopsy. And it's a fascinating read. That's who I'm chatting to if you have just joined us. But your job doesn't only entail the medical side of things. I mean, I think people think that it's just you and a body on a slab. Talk about also having to read hundreds of suicide notes. And um, I find it really surprising that you mentioned a statistic in your book that only about 20% of suicide victims leave a note. And uh and, and you, you go on from there to discuss, you know, the personal things about about looking out for signals in people, caring for people, watching for signals in people, watching the people close to you, you know, really taking care of people and that's that's triggered that in you, that that we need to to really take care of each other. And so it's not really only about the clinical and the medical. There's that, that interpersonal compassionate side to the field as well, that I don't think people think about, or I don't think it crosses people's minds when they think about something like this.
2: Well, we are still doctors when all is said and done, and we took the um, equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, and I believe it's also the way we brought up, you know, in our, in our culture, you know, to care and be more mindful, to care about yourselves and care about others. And my book discusses all these things. You know, it's about the blind spot of humanity, I call it. You know, it talks about, for example, pets on scenes. It talks about people's medicine cabinets. And I'm uh, going to death into suicide notes. Uh, I mean, you really get an insight into what's happening in the world just by reading suicide notes. You know, it's, uh, the the metaphor I give is a panel beater. You know, if someone's working in a panel beating shop and sees all these cars coming in damaged – even though they've never seen the accident, they get a pretty good idea of what's happening on the streets with regards to car accidents. And if you read enough suicide notes, you almost have a template of what a normal suicide note looks like. And I've read strange suicide notes, you know, and they are really tragic. uh, Many of them, you know, I've seen suicide notes written on walls, on text messages, on pieces of paper, put in the sock in the underwear, you know, and Some are incredibly long and some are incredibly short. And, you know, some are incredibly neat and some are incredibly untidy. And it's written in a very textured way, you know. And we've even, you know, someone can hold a gun to your head and say, write a suicide note. Right. And then murder you? And we've actually got divisions that can determine if this is an ipso facto suicide note or or not a suicide note. And, I mean, I've even seen people swallow their suicide notes, you know, and and find it in their stomachs. Oh, my
1: God.
2: And, you know, it's always written as – I, I, this, you, you, this, there's pin codes, there's end-of-life directives, there's I'm straight for this, tell this person I love them. You know, reading suicide notes is um, an insight into the loneliness and the tragedy of uh, the human condition.
1: And I don't think you, – you start off by saying, um, you know, you are doctors, and I think people forget that, that you started out as doctors. You took the Hippocratic Oath and you're doctors. And I think people forget that. They think that, I don't know how they, they think that you reached the stage of your career that, that I don't know if people even think about how you reached forensic pathology, how you got there. But I think people forget that you, you went through that, that medical training and, and all the fields of med- medicine and about going through empathy, dealing with patients, dealing with families. I think people forget that there is that side of things. I think, like I said earlier, they think of you in a lab with a body and that's all they think about. Well,
2: we never want to see the same death happen twice. So we are actually public health doctors. We are detectives in white coats. So, for example, an example I've given in the book, um, if I may, you know, I attended a coroner court hearing in Britain and it was a... A gentleman who went through a stop speed and hit a woman. Uh, she fractured her legs, developed deep venous thrombosis. She developed pulmonary embolism and died. So I was sitting there in the in the in the stands listening, and the one lawyer asked the um the driver, "Why does he think he hit that woman, you know, with his car?" And he said, "It was 4 p.m. in the afternoon." and he was blinded by the sunlight, and he never saw her, and he hit her accidentally. So then they did an investigation. They went to that intersection, and they found out that at that season of the year, at that time of day, at 4 p.m., the sunlight does blind someone at that intersection. And that magistrate ordered that a billboard be erected at that intersection so no one ever in the future of mankind at that intersection gets blinded by the light, that this never happens again. And that is a civilized society now I yes. always ask myself how many deaths must we have on our mulotto road, for example, or how many promised stove deaths must we have um, we, you know this is unnecessary we should never suffer the same death twice
1: and this goes back to your your theme that runs through the book about fighting for justice and the fight yeah. against injustice
2: I mean you won't believe it but Electric car windows. It was a forensic pathologist that first picked out that they can kill people. Um, I, I, I vaguely remember the story, but a, a child accidentally pushed a button and got strangled by the, the, one of the first electric car windows. Oh, totally. and now electric car windows have got a cut-off switch. You know, so there's always stuff that's going to go wrong in society, and we should pick this up and feed back into society so that this never happens again. And that makes us stronger as a society to go forward.
1: Tell me about, now this is something that fascinates me, and I think it's more to do with, with crime scenes and with with um, death through crime and criminal acts. Tell me about, I don't know how to pronounce properly, is it Locard's principle, Locard's principle, um, and taking care to not mistake the unobserved with the unobservable. Tell me about that.
2: right, so these are actually two different topics. Um, I'll discuss the first one, Locard's principle. So Edmund Locard from 1643 in Lyon in France came up with his principle, and this principle is what we base our entire field of forensics upon, which is the law of interchange. So every contact leaves a trace. So if you sit on a chair, the chair will leave a fiber on you, and you will leave maybe a scalp hair on the chair, and that means the two of you have come into contact. So you must explain how the fiber got in you and your hair got in the chair. So the law of interchange is very powerful. And in fact, low-cost principle is so powerful and it has so many ramifications that I don't even think the public have critically thought about. For, for example, um, the whole infection theory is low-cost principle. You don't just get sick. You come in contact with um, a fomite on which there is a bacteria and you You come in contact with it. So even COVID-19 is the law of interchange. You are coming in contact with someone with it. So every contact leaves a trace. Even this interview we are having now is leaving traces. You are leaving traces on me and I'm leaving traces on you in the way of thoughts and memes and ideas and suggestions. So we cannot leave this interview being the same people afterwards. Low cost principle is so powerful, people have no idea how powerful it is.
1: I think that's, that's why I think it just caught my attention because I thought, it's actually mind blowing. <laughs> it blew my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I read it, I read that, the, I, I read it, I reread it, I read it again and again, and I, I just, it's something that I can't stop thinking about.
2: It fascinates yeah. me. Yeah, it changes your worldview once you see the world in low-cards uh, viewpoint. um The second idea is another concept. Um, it's mistaking the unobserved for the unobservable, etc. Um, this is also a, another theme in the book. It's, you know, it's about... Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. You know, um, does it, every evidence leave a trace? For example... Does the absence of evidence equal evidence of absence? And does the presence of evidence equal evidence of presence? Just because it was there, does that mean it was actually there? Or could someone have placed it there? And just because it wasn't there, does that mean it wasn't there, or did someone remove it? You know, so this is how you've got to catch criminals, because um you've got to think like a criminal to catch a criminal. So someone can place a hair at that scene, or someone can remove a bullet from a body. So you've got to go one step further than low cards and to observe sometimes what's not really observable.
1: And you have to know what you're looking for. Well,
2: that's the thing. So in my book, I discuss hanging, for example. And even though people have never seen a hanging, they do it in a typical way. You know, and we know what to look for at a hanging scene. If we do not find what we're looking for, the red lights go off. And now we're thinking in terms of a staged homicide, for example. Yeah. So... You know, um and I don't want to go into too much, they have to read about this, but yeah, example, no, definitely. Most, most suicides, you know, people actually have a full meal, their stomachs are full. You know, you'd think you're going to kill yourself, why eat? You know, yeah. they, their stomachs are full, and you know, when people hang themselves, they don't, for example, catch their hair in the knot. You know, like, so if there's not caught in the, if there's hair caught in the knot, you know, the red lights go off, etc. And, and there's there's many more little subtleties uh, on such a scene that we look for. But, you know,
0: it's in the book. I love it when you read this is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz.
1: Today we are listening to a pre-recorded interview that I did with Dr. Ryan Blumenthal about his book Autopsy, Life in the Trenches of a Forensic Pathologist in Africa. And um, if you have just started listening, you are going to hear the remainder of the interview after this, and you can always catch it on the podcast that will be available from next week. And seriously, this is one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done, and I hope that you are finding it as interesting as I am finding it, listening to it again. And if you can get hold of the book, really, really try and get hold of it, because it's just the most intriguing read. Even if you are not medically inclined, if you don't watch CSR, it's just the most fascinating topic. And the way Ryan has written the book is, as he says, to make it accessible to everybody. And he, he believes that the time has come for everybody to understand what it is that forensic pathologists do. And specifically, pathologists, forensic pathologists in Africa And the challenges that they face and the very unique cases that they deal with and the book is just it's tremendous if you can get hold of it it's autopsy life in the trenches with a forensic pathologist in africa let's listen to the rest of the interview i am chatting to dr ryan blumenthal about his fascinating book called autopsy you definitely need to get a copy it's I mean, I'm squeamish, but I read it. I was fascinated by it. It plays on my mind. And it doesn't matter if you are not interested in medical stuff. If you don't watch CSR, get the book. Because I'm telling you, this is something you will read and you will be glued to the pages. You will not be able to put it down. It's really an unputdownable book. That is a word. And you will love it. Go and look for it. It's Autopsy by Dr. Ryan Blumenthal. Um you say this took six years to write. Um, you obviously finished it off, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe towards the end of last year, beginning of this year, because you do mention COVID. And in your chapter "Risking Life for Death," you talk about um, all the protective clothing you listed you list in detail. All the protective clothing that um, pathologists are mandated to wear, and it's an extensive list. Was that written? before or after covid and what has changed because i'm i'm thinking that a lot has changed um this year
2: well make no mistake things have changed and um i i finished the book um as covid was starting and um i tried to get as much data as i could get to put in the book um, and for what i wanted to say um you know, look, I've, I've even performed several autopsies myself within the last two weeks on COVID cases. So, But the, the message I wanted to get across was, as the chapter heading says, risking life for death. You know, COVID is a Category 3 pathogen, um, whereas Ebola is a Category 4 pathogen. And, you know, there's been pathologists that have been killed by their own autopsies. You know, there's people that will swallow poisons such as potassium cyanide which reacts with the hydrogen chloride in your stomach and forms hydrogen cyanide. So you just cut the stomach open and you overcome with hydrogen cyanide gas. You know, there's people that put uh, explosive weapons in bodies in some parts of the world and how dangerous some of these autopsies can be. I mean, we've had cocked and loaded weapons fall out of bodies. You know, there's, there's infectious risks, there's mechanical risks, there's psychological risks, um, there's radioactive risks. It, it is a, a very high risk profession. And, you know, COVID was mentioned um, in one or two paragraphs in that because, you know, there, there's still a lot of stuff out there besides COVID that can still kill and hurt us. So I alluded to it. I didn't go into excessive detail, but I, I wanted to just get across that we risk life for others' deaths.
1: All the time. And and I think you mentioned you do ex- you obviously x-ray the bodies before opening them up. You know, I mean, you're talking about this bizarre idea of of bombs inside bodies. I mean, I, I have no idea why there would be a bomb inside a body.
2: Um, there are places in the world, yeah, where people want to actually harm health personnel. You know, they are, and I discuss this in my book, the uh, International Day of the Disappeared, which is on the 30th of August, every year through the ICRC, which is the International Committee of the Red Cross, where forensic pathologists, typically in Africa, disappear. You know, they either leave the country or they disappear because they found something contrary to an authority. So, oftentimes we do get these hot potato cases, which no one wants to deal with. And um, you know, this field is—you need thick skin. You need a pachydermatic dermatic, uh, outer dermal layer. Yeah, for this field.
1: it's insane. I mean, and and the the other strange thing you spoke about—the um, good luck charms that you often find and the amulets which obviously have not helped the victims that are lying on your table. But um, I know in in some countries and in some cultures, that is huge. And, I mean, are those physical things? I mean, I know there are some physical, actual physical good luck charms. A lot of them are tattoos. And I know that that's a huge culture in itself.
2: Well, I I discuss my biggest case in the book where I actually um, – Cover an international um, terrorism organization through the victim's good luck charms. Um, you know, it was six men, it was a cash-in-transit tra- robbery, and I, just out of curiosity, opened up their good luck charms and found um, Arabic writing, you know, for African men, and it turned out to be, uh, you know, they were funding an international organization through cash-in-transit robberies in South Africa. So... But, yeah, people, all cultures, all races, all religions have their good luck charms, their talismans, you know. Um, and I, I went into depth to discussing what we find on bodies, you know, whether it's the beckoning hand, the the all-seeing eye, you know, we get stars of David, you, you name it, strings with uh, muti. Yeah. And it, it just gives you an idea as to, you know, the belief system of the person lying on the table.
1: It, it's absolutely fascinating i'm going to digress from the book um we are we are running out of time and i'm going to digress and throw you a complete whammy here tell me about magic
2: okay so it was my slu-
1: uh, it was my hobby
2: um for many years sluts of hand uh magic uh, it, it is my hobby it, it still is uh, I just found it fascinating as to – it's a nerd thing. It's a very nerdy um, hobby. Um, It's it's fascinating. It requires a certain type of thinking. You know, it's about fooling people and how people get fooled and misdirection. And I think it was a natural evolution into forensics because oftentimes we do get um, someone that tries to stage a murder or what I call the simulacrum of the norm murder. They make it look like a normal hanging or normal natural death, whereas it's actually a very crafty homicide. And I think my slice of hand magic has helped me uh, identify that kind of thinking. So it would fly, you know, on, on the average person. But I think if you know what to look for, um, you know, but then every now and again, we get fooled and we get fooled badly. So it keeps you very, very humble. It's about puzzle solving, you know, why are there puzzles? Why do we do puzzles? And I challenge the audience in my book by saying, which is more difficult? Being told, here's a puzzle, solve it, or not knowing whether you're in a puzzle in the first place. And, and that kind of thinking, where you've got to consistently in, uh, be on high alert, you know, you, you could, what could be presented to you as a normal pedestrian vehicle accident case, could be a crafty homicide. And you've always got to have that high level of suspicion. So it's a way of thinking, which I, I describe.
1: It's quite a conundrum that. So, but you've actually won an international competition with your magic, haven't you?
2: Well, I've been to several, um, uh, world magic champs and I've, I've never really, um, competed. I, I, I did attend, uh, one FISM and I entered a, a competition there. Um, I got recognized. Uh, I wouldn't say I, I got, I won, but uh, it's I think it's global recognition
1: is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Global no, it's, recognition it's, for it is, is, you know. Thank
2: you, it's but yeah, it, it just fascinates me, and it's it's my hobby.
1: And I think that that, as you say, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's a natural progression, but as you say, it it's it helps you. It's that that. Um, it's that like working out puzzles, and it's it's a, a way of your brain working. And and as you say, like specifically, with trying to figure out. Well, like I can give you an example. What are you
2: for? Um, like uh, in the book, I discuss a case where doctors accidentally gave a patient the wrong blood type, and then the units of blood went missing. You know, whether by accident or on purpose, we'll never know. But we couldn't find the the blood packet containers. So now, how do you solve a case like that? So we actually went looking for the red blood cells of that. Uh, transfused blood, which led us to sending the samples to Copenhagen, um, to, to actually identify those, those red blood cells sequestrated in the liver of the wow. deceased victim. So you, you've got to, like, it's a puzzle. How do we solve it? And then get on with it.
1: You mentioned, um, the shortage of forensic pathologists. Um, in in Africa, in South Africa, in Africa, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you you put up billboards or place ads on social media, but um, how do you think this is something that can be overcome? Do you think it's something that could ever be overcome? I mean, how would you appeal to to the right people to move into this specific area of medicine? Do you think this is something that is ever going to change in in our area of the world?
2: Janice, that is a fantastic question. Because, look, just to give the listeners some perspective, we have 57.4 million people in South Africa, and there are currently only 56 board-registered forensic pathologists in South Africa. Wow! So we're all performing anywhere between 450 to 650 autopsies per person per year. And we want people with the right stuff. You know, we cannot accept someone who's applying for dermatology and psychiatry and never got in and now wants to do forensic pathology because these people, the attrition rate is massive. They, they're they going to drop out because what keeps you going off your 9,000th autopsy, your 15,000th autopsy, et cetera? And it comes down to professionalism, and you've got to go into it for the right reasons. So you need someone with the right stuff.
1: So, I mean, how many... New pathologists do you get, say, in a year, in five years? Is this a number that, that increases incrementally? I mean, you know, how, how does this work?
2: Well, as I said, currently there's 56 of us in the country. Um, the rest are being performed in the periphery by general practitioners with a diploma in forensic medicine. But we need ideally 250 to 300 forensic pathologists in this country. You need Six forensic pathologists per million population. And obviously it will depend on what kind of population. Some populations are more violent than other populations. So for example, in Sweden and in Switzerland, you, uh, you won't need six per million. There maybe one or two per million would, would suffice. But here in South Africa, you know, we need about six per million.
1: Yeah. And also you, you travel into, deeper into Africa as well. You, you travel to other African countries as well. So you're not actually just serving our area in South Africa itself. You you travel to African countries as well where there aren't well, many forensic pathologists to to do the work that needs to be done.
2: Well, I address this also in the book. You know, it's inter-jurisdictional forensics. You know, what happens if someone dies on the island of Mauritius or in Mozambique or in Botswana? You know, you're on a holiday, you die there. You're at the mercy of their forensic system. Um, can you trust it? Is it accredited? You know, um, uh, and and there's massive ramifications to this. You know, you, there's there's strict protocols. And, you know, I, I, I raise awareness of this fact in the book, and it's a discussion which needs to be had. You know, if you die in Malawi or Senegal, you know, what happens next? So I, I, I'll touch on that also in the book.
1: A big problem that needs to be addressed, I mean, I don't know how it would be addressed. And as you say, you need people with the right stuff. And I don't think they rock up every day, do they? And <laughs> not sure how we well, would overcome I, I, a problem I'm, like this.
2: I think uh, I'm, I'm the second Jewish forensic pathologist in South Africa. I think Dr. Kemp was the first. Um, he was a generation before me. I'm not aware of any others. I don't know if anyone um, you know, can, Gordon, I think from Cape Town was uh, also so, interesting, I think well, I'm the third, maybe, in this country.
1: You're a trailblazer. Oh,
2: not really. <laughs> Just trying to do what, but...
1: I think you are... Your I think your humility is absolutely praiseworthy, really. You are... What you achieve and what the work that you do is, is absolutely incredible under hugely difficult circumstances a lot of the time, most of the time, in fact. And really i can only commend you for what you do your book is fascinating it makes for riveting reading um and if you're listening i have been chatting to dr ryan blumenthal we've been talking about his book autopsy go and get it i promise you you won't regret it it's a riveting page turning read you won't be able to put it down ryan thank you so so much for your time it's been fascinating I could chat to you for hours.
2: And are you. And thank you for this. Thank you for this. I love it when you
0: read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
1: I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I was really, really privileged to have that opportunity to speak to Ryan Blumenthal about his book. Ryan's time is, I mean, we we try to organize that interview. It took us weeks. To, to organize that and to set it up because Ryan is really, um, pressed for time. He just managed to take a few days off that week of Yom Kippur. And that was when we managed to, to grab the time to do that. Um, as you can imagine, um, with the stats that he gave with the number of uh, forensic pathologists that we have in South Africa, we are severely short of these practitioners. And as you can imagine, his time is just really short. He's really pressed for time. So I was really, really lucky to get the opportunity to chat to him, and I really, really appreciate the time that he gave up um, to speak to me. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. As I say, the book is it's riveting reading. Um, Get your hands on it. It, it, That second print run has been done, so it is available in the shops and um, apparently available on Take-A-Lot. Thank you, Tamara Block, for messaging me to let me know that as well. But I think that print one has been finalised. It is out again in the stores. As we said, um clearly there is huge interest in this area of, of medicine. And I know that, that due to CSI it was very glamorized and, you know, the Hollywood aspect of it and people just there's some gory aspect to it as well. That just makes people want to read about it and there's no there's no glamorization of it in this book as ryan said it's a kitchen confidential nitty gritty very clinical and and but but very accessible description that he gives in this book and it's very easy reading as bizarre as that sounds um it's autopsy life in the trenches with a forensic pathologist in africa it is a great read it's not a, a long book it's it's just fascinating and great short chapters. I know for, for people who are readers, we love short chapters. They are, and it's a book you can just read from start to finish. It's not one of those dense and intense books that you will pick up and have to put down and leave and read something else in between. It's, it's riveting. Really, it's a gripping read. It's just really, really interesting. And he talks about, as he said in the interview, the unique challenges that forensic pathologists in Africa specifically and in our region of the world face um, quite different to what other forensic pathologists in the rest of the world are dealing with. And he wanted to specifically differentiate when he titled the book. He wanted to make that very clear. So I really hope that you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Ryan. Enjoy this last stretch of the Chagim I hope that you are enjoying the time with your family. I hope that the weather holds. Um, Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, last days in the sukkah. Enjoy it. Enjoy whatever you're reading. And I will be back with you next week. Stay safe, wear your masks, look after each other, and enjoy your week.